This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We have a very exciting program today. We are joined by the editors and webmasters of Medievalists.net. Their names are Peter Konechny and Sandra Alvarez. So Peter and Sandra, thank you so much for um, being a guest of our show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. For the listeners um, at home who may not have heard of Medievalists.net, let's start at the very beginning. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how the conception for the uh, Medievalist website formed? I started uh, doing uh, websites uh, for medieval topics in around the year uh, 2001. And one of the things I've always wanted to do was establish a website that would talk about everything associated with the Middle Ages, uh, something that academics would find useful, but also that the general public would enjoy as well, and to kind of bring all the information together into one uh, source. So around 2008, I talked to Sandra, who's been a, a friend of mine for years and a fellow medievalist, about creating this site. And she was very happy, uh, very willing to do so. We started the website in September of uh, 2008. So Peter approached me and, you know, at first it was sort of like, oh, this would be a nice hobby because we really weren't crazy about our day jobs. And we we're like, let's do something on the side that makes us happy and outside of the sort of academic sphere, because really, it's a very, you know, you're a professor or you're not. Yes. And this was sort of a nice way to be part of the academic community without going the traditional route. So I was really excited to do that. And it gave me that satisfaction of, you know, you get asked a lot, well, what are you going to do with a degree in medieval studies? Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> and all the time, you know, whether you're taking philosophy or I minored in Victorian literature. So what are you going to do with all this stuff, with this history and literature stuff? Well, now my answer is, in this day and age, you start a website. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a great outlet for that because otherwise you feel like you're isolated from the stuff that you love doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, in this instance, the um, Medievalists.net and CU Medieval Radio sort of have a common goal. You know, one of the reasons why I love doing um, my show Past Perfect is the fact that I get to talk to all sorts of specialists in all sorts of fields and try and make the research that they're doing as accessible. I want my grandmother to be listening to my show and to be able to understand <laughs> it. And she does listen, which I'm, if she's listening out there, hi, Grandma. In terms of the early days of the website, getting back to the topic, initially, what did you feel was most important when setting up the website? The, getting the content, uh, kind of figuring out what we would include in the site. What I noticed as I'm a librarian in my uh, day job was that there were hundreds of articles and resources that were scattered around the internet, but there was no medium where they were all together, at least where people could find them. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things we started to do was just start listing out and making a little page for each article. Like this could be a, a dissertation or a just like uh, someone's uh, particular website, an academic article on a website or uh, another uh, scholarly society that put up their material online and just kind of putting that together. 
Mm -hmm. And literally, since we've begun that, there's been uh, thousands of articles are going up on all sorts of uh, platforms, uh, universities, academia.edu, and so forth. And so one of the first things we did was just to try and get those things all into uh, one kind of spot that people could find them. Also, yeah, deciding audience, too. I mean, we realized that we wanted, like, that's the initial step. But for me, I felt that academia was a little bit cliquish yes. and non-inclusive. And my goal, personally speaking, was to try and show people, and I think this is also part of Peter's goal in, in the end game, was why you know the Middle Ages matter, why history mm-hmm. matters, because so many programs are being closed or you know if it's not business, it's deemed unimportant or irrelevant. And if we could get people on board, you know, from the general public, like that kid at home playing Warcraft, yeah, if we can get him interested in the Middle Ages and see why history is important, it would help, you know, push history programs, education, just everything seems to be going sort of in more of like a technical, practical route. Mm-hmm. And I just want people to have that love of history that we do. So the audience for me was important. I didn't want it to just be a professor in a tweed jacket with patches on his elbows. I wanted it to reach out to teenagers and adults who had never really had much of a background in the Middle Ages but might find a few articles or Mm -hmm. things interesting enough to get them into it, if that makes sense. It, it, it absolutely does. And I think that it's a happy medium between information and accessibility that you have on the website. I mean, for the listeners who haven't um, had the chance to look at the website medievalist.net as of yet, what interested me the most was the tabs that had all of the articles um, that you were talking about, Peter. But I also took a look at some of the other tabs that you have up, and there's a section on medieval TV shows. There's a section on medieval games. And whenever I've had to teach um, classes that deal with the medieval history, you know, first day of class, I'd ask the students, you had to take a history class. Why did you take this one? And um, Sandra, the point you made about the kid playing World of Warcraft, a lot of them were sort of like, oh, well, I really like this one medieval movie and I wanted to know more about it, or I really like this one game in particular and thought it would be cool to know about warfare in the Middle Ages. Right, and those games, for a lot of us, I mean, a few years ago we did a thing on why medieval, and I found that a lot of us didn't come into the Middle Ages through traditional academic roots. Like, I came in through Dungeons and Dragons and Tolkien, it's that spark that starts it. That kid playing um, medieval war games or strategy games could be your next medieval professor. You don't know until you've taken that interest and run with it. And so I think for Peter and I, that's our hope that some of the young, fresh blood, younger generation mm-hmm. up and coming will have that interest. Like you have those kids that come in your class and like, oh yeah, I play video games or I I like these movies. And then it gets them involved enough to want to take it further after going on our site or listening to your class. That's the hope. I always saw the audience as being that kind of um, the student who really enjoys history, but doesn't have as much access to resources. Like they've come into it Mm -hmm. By seeing films or a video game, I first got interested in history by playing this video game and wanting to know the backstory behind it. What was it called again, Peter? Rose? It was called Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It was set in early medieval China. 
And there was a whole story beyond that. And it took me uh, months and months to find out where I could actually get the information. I was still a teenager at the time. And I remember, like, like, I wish that there would be a site that I could go and I can find all this stuff out and find really kind of go as in-depth as you want into the topic. And we have articles, too, that are really complex, very academic side to the site. And then we have stuff like video game reviews or movie reviews or shows like Game of Thrones and the Borges Mm -hmm. that start to pique someone's interest. And then they can sort of cruise through the site and be like, oh, I really like this thing in Game of Thrones. I want to know more about knights. And then they can start learning about real knights or whatever it is, right? That's kind of what I hope. We often get a lot of uh, fiction authors that come in onto the site, and they really love being able to get the materials that will help them write. So we get that audience, but at the same time, we also get PhDs and professors who want to get their material out there. They tell us, I love your site, and I want people to read my work because they think if it's just published in a book or an academic journal... Only a very few will get a chance to see it. And then if it goes onto our site, they know that hundreds of people will be able to uh, access this material. Let's add one quick thing. The other thing, too, is that also um, a lot of these PhD or master's students and even professors, sometimes they're on the site looking for articles to further their research. So what ends up happening is people will post things and then there'll be a talk back and forth and, oh, here's a link to this. Or People are, tend to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. So when they put their work out there, they'll often get a lot of good feedback from other scholars. So it's also an academic community of sorts online. It's a really cool site. A lot of different things coming together and blending. And um, I think that's what really makes a site like this um, exciting. Um, One question I also want to ask you is, um, what sort of difficulties, anticipated or otherwise, have you had getting the site up and running and, you know, operating the site, if you don't mind me asking? One of our biggest challenges, and still challenges, is technically that neither of us have very much experience with web programming or um, just being able to know the nuts and bolts of getting these websites. So that's been always kind of an issue with us Mm -hmm. to get you know, uh, really no technical. And, and sometimes it leads to the websites going down or just having kind of difficulties in that. That's always one thing that's been even plaguing us even, even today. So had a bit of a meltdown this morning with some technical stuff. Also time too, because people who are regular readers know this, but Peter and I both work other jobs. So right. when you've worked all day for eight hours and then you have to come home and there's a commitment level like you have to put in um, you come home you're exhausted you want to veg out in front of the TV you really can't you have to get online and respond to tweets and emails and read a book for review watch a movie do another review it's like having two full time jobs and for me it's a little bit better Peter has a son so I can't Mm -hmm. imagine it's tricky you know he works he's a father I work, you know, it, it's a balancing act when you have time limitations. So that's been another sort of challenge that we've had. I can sympathize with you on both aspects. At CU Medieval Radio, we've had uh, the servers gone down a couple of times when we've had a lot of people listening at once. And um, 
the crew of CU Medieval Radio is, you know, our liaison at the Department of Medieval Studies and four students. And um, you two are my 35th interview um, so far, if I remember correctly. And uh, budgeting time, trying to coordinate the guest and me, the host, and then um, someone to record the interview and then to edit it afterwards is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. But um Oh, we do it because we love doing it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's been part of it. Like, we didn't expect that Medievalist.net would uh, going to be like our careers uh, when we started this out. It was something that we were kind of joking, uh, you know, by the time we retire in 30 years, then then we might see some money out of it. Have an allowance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, as our readership grew uh, exponentially and we really became on social media, we wound up getting thousands and thousands of people who were following us. We really saw that this could be something that we could go on and develop. So we actually run five different history websites right now. So Medievalist.net is not the only one, but that's our baby, I guess. Oh, that's right, for other time periods. Yes, ancient uh, American Civil War, early modern England, the War of 1812. And those have sort of grown out of offshoots of, like, Peter and I cheating on the Middle Ages. Like, I have a secret thing for the American Civil War. I see. (laughs) So I pressed him, I was like, please, make a site for this. I won't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you feel like you're cheating, but it's kind of funny. But so we've expanded, so it's become even crazier. Like my Twitter, it's bonkers. Yeah, yeah, we. Uh... <laughs> With all these different Twitter accounts for different time periods, I wish I had a clone <laughs> or some or a twin yeah. I could send out as me. That'd be kind of a nice thing to do. So yeah, it's a bit crazy, and and timing is everything, and you know. Yes. Alrighty, well, we're going to take a very short break, but we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Christopher Melke, your host for Past Perfect, and today we're interviewing Peter Konitsny and Sandra Alvarez, the editors and webmasters of Medievalists.net. Thank you two very much for being here today. Thanks. Thank you. One of the things that really impressed me, both looking at your website and talking um, to the two of you just now, is the fact that um, there's constantly new discoveries and new information out there being published on the Middle Ages. And whenever I talk to people on the street or at a bar or something, usually the response is something along the lines of, oh, well, don't we already know everything that we need to know? I obviously do not agree with that in quite vociferous terms, and I just wanted to ask the two of you a little bit about some of the new discoveries or recent research that you've um, encountered or come across. Uh, just to talk, like, you know, our site, we find uh, news that gets reported and we learn about it ourselves from all sorts of sources. And we literally, there's about maybe three or four discoveries, whether they be archaeological or about texts. I recall last week there was a, a letter discovered written by Robert the Bruce to Edward II uh, seeking peace in the years just before the Battle of Bannockburn. That was just, again, another kind of scholar just came across that, and that adds in a bit of more historical knowledge. The most uh, widely known kind of news in the last year or so has been the discovery of Richard III in Leicester. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has made like international headlines, and that has kind of... Um, just changing the way that his kingship is being uh, reflected upon and it's adding a lot. And you can see that there's a huge 
groundswell of interests just among the general public about this figure. And it's all really due to archaeological work being done. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when that came out, a bunch of friends I had on Facebook who knew that I was studying the Middle Ages were posting the article on my wall saying, oh, have you heard about this? And, you know, these are my friends who are dental hygienists and pet groomers and things like that. So it's always interesting to see how something like this really, really captures the public imagination. And Richard III, he's quite the figure both in history and in literature, one could say. Definitely. Another story was last summer, it was announced that a medieval bra was found in in Austria. Yes, I remember that. That was a very popular (laughs) story on our site. People were just fascinating that this thing could have been uncovered after hundreds of years being buried in a castle in between the floors. And it opened up a lot of ideas into what medieval fashion may have looked like in the 15th century. So... But those things happen, literally, we get two or three articles a week of something like that happening. I know that this summer there's going to be an archaeological expedition in Australia. They're looking to see, uh, there were some medieval coins found in the 1950s off the northern coast of Australia. And they're going to actually do uh, an archaeological dig there to see if there may have been some sort of settlement, uh, maybe by Arab or Asian traders. No kidding. You know, and it's interesting to add to that because when I was at Kalamazoo, one of the papers was given by a professor at the University of Sydney, and she was talking about fantasy literature, and uh, she was talking about Australia, and she said she had come across a thread on the internet where people said, well, Australia, that doesn't count as medieval, and you know, Australia, because people don't traditionally consider it as a whatever the middle ages but it has a history there so it's always a shock to people Mm -hmm. when they're say oh you know australia and the middle ages in the same sentence but maybe now this kind of thing will uncover more about that and show people that it's not just europe right (laughs) we're very eurocentric in our thinking when we consider the middle ages it's very like europe and that's it amen right So it's nice to open up other doors. And I was going to say another thing, um, and Peter can speak more to this, there was also, you know, a little bit of um, tension and activity with the Medieval Academy of America, the resignations there, that made news in the medieval world. Yeah, we also report on, say, activities within academia, and often they're very good stories. Um, Mm -hmm. We actually had to kind of report on the Medieval Academy of America and the resignation of executive directors uh, that happened in April. It's not something we particularly enjoy reporting on. We're not in it to talk office politics, but we realize that our audience, they need to know about this as well. So there's there's that thing happening as well, too. Yeah, we try to cover stuff like that as as factually as we can without making it too Mm tabloid-esque. I guess. I mean, but we have to report on it because we can't pretend that it didn't happen. Right. And another thing I was going to say that's really interesting, we've been going to Kalamazoo for a long time. I've been going since I was an undergrad at U of T, the University of Toronto, for those of you who who don't know. And one of the great things that's been happening in recent years is that there have been a lot of digital round tables and paper sessions, and we took part in two of them. Now, academics and scholars are acknowledging that, hey, yes, there is social media discussing things like open access uh, for journals and article research. And that's coming to the forefront now, whereas, you know, even 10 years ago, that was something that wasn't even discussed or entertained. 
Now there's entire sessions devoted to technology, digitization of maps and mm. records, social media use with academia. And I'm really enjoying the direction that's taken, like sort of marrying medieval with modern. Mm -hmm. Because it, it allows us to spread the medieval around. <laughs> it also touches on technologies really adding a lot to being a way how scholars and you know medievalists can share information and just open up new ways. For example, like we they did like a facial reconstruction, a digital facial reconstruction of Richard III, which is based on various scans and things like that. Um, so those things are getting possible. And it's also we're seeing that we're able now to, like many medieval manuscripts uh, were once kind of confined to the archive or the library. Uh, now they have this can go online and be seen by millions of people and be accessed by researchers fairly widely. Well, definitely. And the good thing about it is, I mean, in some cases, access to certain archives often can be very difficult. Speaking about the situation in Hungary, for instance, I'm very, very fortunate in that the National Archives database here in, in Budapest has scans online of charters that are now currently held in Slovakia or in Croatia or in Romania. Mind you, the scans aren't always incredibly good quality. Usually they're scans from photos taken in the 1960s or 70s, but it's still information that would otherwise be very difficult for me to access to that I can just go and take a look at it and say to myself, oh, I need this or oh, I don't need this. And then there's also the little fun bits where you can look up old um, proper illuminated manuscripts online and see all sorts of funny bits of marginalia, like knights fighting gigantic snails, for instance, is a very popular image in a lot of medieval manuscripts. And I think the other interesting thing about that is, you know, when you look at things like that, you can see aspects of humor in things like marginalia and misericords that you may not be able to see them in person because it's difficult to go to a cathedral in southern France. But looking at a picture online helps you visualize something like that. Yeah, and it's great that on my iPad, I have the Book of Kells. So it, it allows you with digitization, like I don't have to fly anywhere. Mm -hmm. I can just click and see something that's in Europe or in the UK or Ireland or whatever and enjoy it just as much as somebody enjoying it there. And that's really great in terms of promoting history because everybody is online now. You can't ignore it and put your head in the sand and go, I don't want to do this. It's sort of do or die. And the way new scholars are moving, they're moving in that direction. And they have social media accounts, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And they want quick and easy access to this information. So putting it online and making it accessible is so, so important. I can't stress that enough. And it also will bring in a lot of new people that can see this for the first time and they don't know how to access it, but they're involved in, say, Twitter or Tumblr. And there are just wonderful people working on that, just kind of sharing images. And they've become quite popular. And you can see that people are fascinated by that kind of aspect. And it reveals to them things that they didn't know about before or 
And that's something you know we both try and do here with Medievalist.net. Like I just um, posted about a book about party crashing in the 11th century. What? Uh, Going to a party uninvited or something? Yeah, yeah. This was happening oh, in uh, medieval Baghdad. And there's this whole book of anecdotes that's just been translated into English. So I wanted to talk about that and talk about all these kind of funny tales of party crashers Wait and how they would get into homes and weddings and things like that. The, the medieval Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. I actually think I remember someone posting up uh, a link on their wall about that because now that you mentioned it, I, i'm actually like that sounds very familiar i always try and see if i can find where the humor of the middle ages show to our like modern audience that the middle ages wasn't just a dour purely thought of religion and warfare but they had interests there was things they thought were funny there was things that they uh, loved things like that and, you know show that they were human beings back then too so well, at one of the guests on the show that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, I was relating to them an incident where I was talking with someone, and I can't remember the conversation verbatim, but essentially the gist of what they said to me was, well, infant mortality was so high, people didn't care about their children. And essentially where it devolved into from there was that there really wasn't such a thing as the family before maybe the 19th century. I've yeah. heard that as well, but I've seen how, you know, you can look at like even literature yes. and see people that, you know, talking about grieving for their loved ones, oh, their children. Or look at work like Barbara Hanawalt does extensive work on family and that sort of thing, right? I mean, it's out there. Well, yeah, I mean, the research out there, but it does have to fight against this perception that some people think that there was no such thing as the family in the Middle Ages. Absolutely not true. And that there was no such thing as humor in the Middle Ages. Absolutely not true. And the sort of humor that you have in the Middle Ages is very shocking at times. Chaucer has a lot of stuff in there that's, you know, you read it and you, you sort of feel a little bit blasphemous because you're, you're laughing at this joke. I mean, in one of the Canterbury Tales, a rich old man has a dispute with um, a set of friars, and he wants to make them a donation, but to make amends. And what he ends up doing is he ends up farting at one of the friars and saying, divide it amongst the 12 of you. So their solution is to get a wheel with 12 spokes and take the wheel and divide the fart that way. <laughs> I can't remember which tale that is, but it's... I mean, Plastic. oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, if readers, uh, if your listeners have a chance, they should try and find out about the old French fabliaux. Those are tales that were written in the 12th, 13th century. They are kind of precursors to Chaucer, and uh, they are some of the most raunchy and sexually explicit works. They're they're humorous works, a lot about adultery and. Uh, hijinks, uh, and they're very funny. Sexy shenanigans. You know, in like... <laughs> I will have to check this out right now. And it was one thing, like, you know, when I started as an undergrad, I didn't even know that these things existed, and it was one of our uh, professors, one that both Sandra and I had, who introduced us to this topic. It changed my perceptions of the Middle Ages and how people wrote and what they people wrote about. And I could see that their interests aren't, uh, it's just not one-sided. There are many sides to Middle Ages, including R-rated content. So. Yeah, a lot of people seem to think that everyone in the Middle Ages was very religious and very chaste, and nobody was having sex, and nobody right. was making raunchy jokes, and 
there's so many stereotypes and I think that's another thing with us is that we're trying to smash them. <laughs> Good. Well, we'll have to take a short break for now, but we'll be back momentarily. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Milke, and joining us today are the editors and webmasters of Medievalist.net, Peter Konichny and Sandra Alvarez. We thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. So I wanted to spend this section um, talking about something that I feel is very important for me, and um, I would assume for the listeners of CU Medieval Radio is just something that, you know, I encounter a lot um, in conversations with everyday people. The concept of why is studying the Middle Ages important? I think that in order to understand, especially I think if you're, like our background is Polish, so especially like if you look at Poland, which has over a thousand year history, to understand who you are, where you've come from, why your culture is the way it is, I don't know how you could possibly ignore history. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you could possibly say it's unimportant or poo-poo the idea and say, you know, we're in a technical scientific age and we don't need history anymore. I, I think it's a good way of understanding human nature and it answers a lot of questions about who we are today. Peter? Yeah, I certainly agree with that. The, it, you want to know about your own past and the past of how events came to buy that we're in this kind of society that we're in. And, and I also think that you look at the Middle Ages and you can see how people use a different perspective to look at problems that we have today, whether it be, you know, financial debt or warfare or morality. And they came up with a different viewpoint, you know, for like, if you take a look at how people did pricing in the Middle Ages, how things were items cost. Mm -hmm. And you could see, like, I, I looked at medieval London, where there's all sorts of regulations and saying, the bread can be only sold at uh, one pence, and this is how much bread that, you know, they would change it every few months or every year, how much how much one pence would get you for bread. Mm-hmm. And they did that because they wanted to be, make sure that everyone would be able to eat. A person that you, you, you had to leave the smallest bit of money, you could buy something with that. You could buy some food. And uh, they had to kind of deal with that problem. It's a, it's a major problem of even today is, you know, how getting people to eat and, you know, being able to feed your city or your family. And in the Middle Ages, they had different concepts. And not that, you know, our concepts are, are much better. They, in, many, in many cases, they are. But sometimes I think if you take a look at Middle Ages, you can see different ideas and maybe work that into your line of thinking. I think both of you have excellent points. One in terms of how did we get to where we are today, I think is very important for us to know. And and for the more pragmatically minded, it's always fascinating to me to look at urban history and see the credit situation that they had, where if someone's renting it from a house, you know, there's about 16 different owners and this absolute genealogy of who owes what to who, who owes what to whom, how much of it is owned. And so when someone's paying rent, it's not just a simple a, a renter paying a lease. It, it's a credit nightmare is, is what I feel like on one hand. And also how when cities had properties, you know, parts of the city were abandoned or there were a bunch of decrepit buildings, how efforts would be made on the part of people to make sure that they were maintained properly, that they weren't a hazard to the other. You also have a lot of regulations about where exactly to put um, a cesspit. 
you can't have a cesspit too close to your neighbor's property. Otherwise, you know, they would complain. And um, getting back to what we were talking about the previous section about all of these perceptions, I mean, yes, there is this perception because there's a lot of laws about when and where you can or cannot have sex, when and where you can have certain items on your property. There are all these very strict regulations about manner, about dress, about personal conduct that show people were breaking them all the time. You have all of these stories about monks and nuns having illicit doings and people having to do penance because, you know, they were having sex during Lent. So it's interesting where the tendency is to look at these rules and say, oh my goodness, you know, no one was having any fun then. But rules are one thing and practice is a completely different other thing, I feel. I take a look at like medieval violence. And one thing I have to keep bear in mind is we don't have a police force that we have in the present day. Uh, we don't have the kind of judicial system. People had to really kind of rely on their families to kind of give them support. And, uh, you know, there's a whole different ways of how to deal with the law and even ideas of morality. The uh, church may have said uh, something, uh, we condone this practice, but they had often had very little means of actually enforcing that on the population. <laughs> In many ways, the Middle Ages, uh, people were a lot freer to do certain things because there was really no one that could stop them, especially if you had swords. Oh, yes. And those are kind of see issues of like how government intrudes on personal lives. <laughs> what might, you know, everyday people get from studying the Middle Ages? I think it answers a lot of questions, like I said before, about um, historically understanding who you are and where you come from, especially, like I said before, about European politics and the economy. You guys both provided really strong examples about how looking in the past can give you an idea of how we manage things now or why we manage things the way we do now and, and how far we've come or not come and how similar and dissimilar we are. And I think for the common person, it never hurts to learn <laughs> um, about the Middle Ages or the American Revolution or World War II or whatever time period. I think it will enlighten you in some way. You're not going to come away with nothing. It's going to add something. You can't come away from learning a piece of history and saying that it's completely useless. I have to agree. And, and Peter, what do you think? There's also the joy of finding out new things and learning about fascinating topics to put, you know, just even to come across a medieval chronicle and, and read it through can be really enjoyable. It's uh, akin to reading uh, a great book. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining and at times, you know, mysterious or, uh, you know, funny or... Uh, it can offer a lot of insights. And, and if you notice, history, the interest in history is booming because, I mean, you have Tudors, Spartacus Blood and Sand, Rome, the Borgias, which sadly I'm so upset was canceled over here. Oh. I'm just devastated by that. Um, you have, you know, the fantasy Game of Thrones. They're having a show coming up here soon called The Vatican. All these kinds of shows show that they're packaging history in a sort of a sexy kind of flashy way yes. and it's getting people talking about it and interested and um, if that sends more people to museums or more people you know to study in Hungary or to study at U of T 
then I'm all for it. Yeah. I think uh, that's wonderful. We've been at, at, at like an art gallery that's been like a showcase in Florentine art uh, from the early 14th century, and there's huge crowds that are, are coming in to see it and, and just and look upon these kind of works. Uh, these manuscripts or uh, sculptures or paintings, and you know, people are, get inspired by that. So, and I think you know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, explore into the Middle Ages, you can find a topic that's going to inspire you, and that could be uh, written or visual, or um, you can take it into, you know, just um, like we love just going to conferences to hear the people talk about their passions. Yeah, personally, like I, I went back home to Poland. Um, in the summer of 2010, and I went to Malbork, and I went to, you know, Kraków, and um, visited all across the country, and, you know, I, I went there initially to see family, and, and look at some, you know, because Poland's a wonderful, it's medieval, you could, like, turn and hit, throw a stone and hit something medieval, it's yes. just ridiculous, <laughs> but it made me love the Middle Ages even more, like, I was just enamored with just standing in a city square and knowing the history that's in front of me, it made it tangible and made it real. Um, and I think, you know, that that was like one of my favorite experiences. And I, I was feeling horribly ill the day that I went to Malbork, but I, I was like, I'm going to get through this tour if it kills me and they have to pull me through this castle on a stretcher. <laughs> and, and I just, I, um, I don't know, it just it, it uh, sort of reignited it for me, being in the midst of it and seeing it, and it was just, and it rekindled sort of also, like I said, my background is Polish, I was born there, um, it kind of rekindled sort of love of Poland and history, and it was, it was, it was a wonderful experience, I, I can't find any fault in learning more about it. I have to say I agree, and um, I'm going to... Um, ask you the last question of uh, our our show, and that is, um, what do you two see as the future of medievalists.net? Is it continuing on ahead, um, full steam ahead, or do you have any um, plans to branch out or um, expand even more than you already have? We're looking at kind of various ways of broadening out the site and reaching, you know, like an even larger audience. And also, like as I said, we're trying to make this our career. So, uh, we're, you know, we're looking at maybe doing some ebooks, offering that material. But we're hoping to put out some more like in-depth pieces that we're writing or that other writers can share with us uh, that be interested in posting on Medievalists. Definitely building uh, the community like that we inadvertently built. We're definitely trying to strengthen that. I'm going to be moving to England at, towards the end of the year. Um, so I'm going to be in the middle of another wonderful medieval country. And it's going to allow me to not just to talk about these places, but to actually physically go there, film, picture, report on, um, attend more conferences in Europe. So I'm kind of really excited about that. We have a lot of things that we want to do. And it's like, we're just trying to find the time and the resources. And clones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they, yeah. And we also love to interact with our the listeners of this program and, and our audience and, and uh, learn from them what they want, what they want to see more on Medievalist.net too. In promoting, um, it's important, very important for us to promote fresh blood, new blood in the um, 
I'll say the industry in, in academia, up and coming medievalists, up and coming ancient historians or early modernists. We want to promote your work. We want to keep the passion for history going. So yeah. if you you want to post a paper on our site, if you want to tell us about a conference or an interview, then we're more than thrilled to accommodate that. Yeah, and that also goes to authors. And we've had a few people approach us, you know, talking about their medieval movie projects, mm-hmm. you know, uh, other websites, uh, things like that. We, you know, we love to kind of, you know, keep sharing that and uh, getting that word out. That sounds really, really incredible. And I think that this this is a fantastic idea. And um, I wish you all the best of success with it. Peter and yeah, Sandra, yeah. thank you so much for being our guest today. It's really been fantastic having you all here. We're so happy you had us on. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having us. And for the listeners back home, we thank you very much for listening as well. Be sure to tune in on our website at www.medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as part of our One Million Medievalists campaign. We thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.